Autumn out, summer bliss, and autumn tears. Yeah, somebody uh, somebody said it's the most emo uh, album title they've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking a little bit. You gave me a nice vinyl of, of the album, which yeah. I'm excited to listen to. And um, you were explaining a little bit about the cover shot. Yeah, so the, the cover shot, and, and just like the artwork in general, I'll talk about for uh, a, a minute. The cover shot came from... Uh, a trip I had taken to South Africa and uh, we were being chased out of Johannesburg by a storm heading up in country and all of this activity was going around you know, going on around us in the vehicle you know rain's coming down this this storm is chasing us it, it was one of those moments and I just happened to look out the side of the vehicle hold up my phone and click and take a picture as things were whizzing by and I later I looked at the photo and I thought oh it's kind of dramatic and it's it ties into this title that you've been thinking about for the record. Maybe you should consider using it. And then also, I'm a huge fan of the Sugar record, Bob Mold's band, Sugar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of his Copper Blue record. And I sort of realized that the colors that were captured in that photograph were yellow and blue, the same as that cover. And there was a lot of movement or motion to it. And I thought, that's kind of a nice riff for a little, you know, like a, a, a tribute just color wise you yeah know? so i decided okay that works we'll use that for the cover and then on the back cover um i worked with a, a really good friend of mine sasha lubkoff who's a great developer and a great artist and we had sort of worked out some ideas for the back cover just mocking stuff up nothing seemed to sort of fit the the sound or the look or or what it was that i was going for and then i suggested one day well you know there's this when I was a kid, I don't even know what it's called, but when I was a kid, there's a game. Basically what it was, it was sort of like a booklet and you'd have a, a the shape of a man and a shape of a woman in it. And what you would do is you would take different items of clothing and switch them back and forth on the characters. And so you'd have like a man wearing chaps and then a shirt and maybe, or a woman wearing a cowboy hat and wearing pants. And yeah. You'd, you'd mix it up with these little magnetic things that you'd stick on top. And I thought, what a cool idea in the sense of like, you could have one you could have one photo on the back or you could do you know multiple photos and kind of tell a bit more of the story and so that's what i ended up doing for the back was doing three separate shots so i have sort of like a head and shoulder shot a body shot with a guitar and then a leg shot with sort of like kind of punky torn torn jeans and my painted toenails um and i i like the idea that i could sort of mix and match these images and kind of tell a little bit more of the story because I knew the front the, the front cover was spoken for it's sort of like this dramatic you know storm nature shot well yeah. you've got to tell some of the story somewhere else and so I pieced those photos together myself in in, in my living room for the back and I just sort of chose the ones that I thought like the headshot is with a, a suit and, and tie like a suit jacket and tie the um, body shot is with my Telecaster guitar. It kind of looks a little Tom Petty-ish, maybe. The, uh, the foot shot is kind of like punk and crusty and torn jeans <laughs> and painted toenails. It's very... It's like it's, a Mr. Potato Head. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I've got, these different, I've got these three different images, and I thought, that sort of works. Like, it works in the sense of, of, of telling a little bit more of the story than just one image could. Um, I ended up using uh, the formatting for the back cover. It was kind of stolen from a Cars record, and it looks a little bit like Nick Lowe's Jesus of Cool, but it's okay to pay tribute to those records that you loved as a kid. And it's also, um, as one friend told me, he said, I looked at it, he says, I looked at it, and he says, 
and I want to listen to the record. Like I, I looked at how you put the outside of it together. And this is something I say like as a label owner to artists that I work with all the time. Okay, what does this look like on the shelf? When we walk into the record store and see your product, what, yeah. what does this look like? Because I want it to tell me what's inside the package. Mm -hmm. I want to know what's inside the package without really asking too many questions. You should, you should sort of know. You know, like a so an, get an alt, idea of uh, yeah, what it. That's it. Like an alt, an alt country record. You're like. maybe not going to market that like in uh, you know twenties period costume. Right. 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 <laughs> right? You're going to find something that 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 riffs on it. That, right. that, that that works with it. You know. So I wanted to be sure that I was following my own advice. And when people picked up the record and looked at it, they could say, "Okay, I kind of get this. It's indie rock. It's it's rock and roll." There's. Um, a variance of looks on it enough to give somebody an idea and go, okay, maybe I'll take a chance on, on buying this record. You know, it's also stickered on the exterior on the shrink wrap for retail. And it sort of tells you a little bit about myself. It tells you who played on the record and it tells you, uh, it tells you, you know, recommend it. If you like, if you like this sort of sound, then you will like this record kind of thing. There's a lot of people that played on the record and I would like to talk to you about that. But while we're talking about just sort of, sort of the origins of the name and the cover work, the title, Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears, can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and where that came from? Yeah, so that it, it's one of the songs on the record, Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. A lot of this record touches on the seasonal and time and movement of time. The switching from summer to fall, the emotions that are explored or captured in a in a in a major change. That's something I could that's something I could work with and kind of mine. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think a lot of the record sort of addresses passage of time or seasons or you know seasons in our in our life. It's always good always good subject material. Yeah. <laughs> material. Um, so that's literally where the title of the record came from. Um, it made sense to me. Uh, I, I figured that w the title track was going to be, uh, or the title of the record was going to be one of the songs that was, yeah. was on the record. That one just particularly seemed to capture the mood. Uh, it's a mood of change. It's a mood of growth. It's a mood of moving on. It's a mood of moving forward. Even though we sometimes think about fall as a, you know, sort of precursor to winter or a, the death of the cycle. Mm. You know, you ask people what their favorite season is and they're going to say two things. They're going to say spring or they're going to say autumn. Yeah. Fall that's is my favorite season. That's usually, yeah. that's usually where people come down on it. It's a little more pronounced in New York. It's a little, the, the leaves, you have the foliage and the leaves right. are these bright yellow and red and orange colors. But here it's a little more subtle, but the, you still feel the cold coming in. The New England Falls are some of the most beautiful falls. Connecticut, Rhode Island, sure. Massachusetts, just absolutely gorgeous. I I had recently, not recent, I guess it's not recent now, but I'd moved up to the country from Los Angeles after being in LA for 23 years or something mm -hmm. like that. I moved up north up onto the grapevine a couple of years ago. And up at elevation, you get seasons. Yeah. It's not like being down here in the basin where it's sort of samey all the time. We get snow at my house. We, you know, the leaves fall off the trees. The deciduous leaves fall off the trees. Once I got to the country and started experiencing country life every day, it really changed my perception on time. And things actually started speeding up. Speeding me, up. Speeding up, literally. Because here in the basin, everything's sort of like kind of 
the samey and it's, you know, very even when you're up there and you see the temperature changing or the weather changing, it's quite pronounced and it makes you feel like things are going by quicker than they are, you know? So you're paying attention more to nature and yeah. what's happening around you and, and that's realize, making you realize that time is a precious thing that's slipping by. Well, I'm also, it's also realizing that it's perceptive mm. thing. Like you can say, oh, that didn't feel like five minutes. Right. That felt like 10 minutes. Our, our perception of time is, an, is a very interesting thing, and we have a loose relationship with it. I'm, I just have a couple of hours to kill, like expressions like that. We've right. worked it into the vernacular. Time flies when you're having fun. Exactly. Yeah. And so we look at it different. Oh, we're, we're out of time. Yeah. You know? Like, for me, being in this place where time was becoming a more pronounced uh, event in my life was pretty interesting and pretty edifying after being, uh, you know, in, in the basin sort of on a, on a, on a basin schedule, you know, well, we go and do this at this time. We go and do that at that time. Saturdays are for shopping, you know, like the way my life changed and my lifestyle changed once I, once I got there, I was like, well, you're out of town. You might not go shopping for 10 days until you right. drive into town to get supplies. Like everything changed. And I was noting this. I was noting that that to the, our perception of time changes and how we deal with it changes. And that had to kind of start seeping in somewhere. So there is, on the record, there is in these songs, there's talk of time, there's talk of seasons, there's talk of uh, our perception of such. That's a really um, interesting thing, like uh, some kind of quantum physics. It's, it's literally metaphysical. Sort of thing where, yeah. Two minutes, you know, is that the same two minutes for everyone? Do they experience it different? So to some people, two minutes could be an eternity. If you're running on the treadmill, it feels like two minutes is forever. If yeah. you're at the beach or something, it could, you know, whatever, you know, it, it could mean something for different people. It's completely fascinating yeah. to me. And so I'm glad that that got worked into, got worked into the subject matter. I think generally the record, it's speaking about, relationships more on a personal side than a political side. I don't think I could, I couldn't sit down like Joe Strummer and write a overtly political song. I would yeah. feel foolish doing that. And he's done it. <laughs> There's no need to follow and no need to do what the trailblazers have done. So it is uh, related to a lot of stuff. The songs are related to personal experience and they're related to avenues of telling stories about personal experiences. I think that it's broad enough in a sense that from song to song, you don't feel like you're being pinned down, but I think there's enough of a thread that flows through it that you feel the stream of consciousness and sort of what's being discussed as, as it goes along. That was a thing uh, that I sought to achieve. Like I was definitely going to write a full record, an LP. I wasn't going to write a couple of singles and then float that and see how it goes. Like you're either in or you're out. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going, I'm going fully in. I'm going to create this body of work. It's going to be a statement about who I am and you know, the music I like, where I've come from, where I'm going both musically, personally, I'm just going to put it out there and lay it all out there. And this was sort of, this was sort of the result of it. How long did that process take? Uh -huh. Excellent question. <laughs> it took a long no, time. Yeah. When did you start recording? It took a long time. The basic tracks for this were probably recorded almost three years ago. Wow. And before that, there was a pretty intense writing session where the stuff just had to come out and be addressed. And 
that process took months in itself just coming up with enough ideas to go okay that's the core of the story and that's the core of what you need to say uh, even though that some of some of those ideas and lyrics are changing right up and until the end of things the body of the body of work was determined a couple of years ago the the one thing about this record that's sort of interesting or maybe different is that it's completely diy in the sense that i wrote the songs i learned learned, taught myself the songs played the core of the instruments myself uh, mixed and mastered it myself came up with the concepts for the artwork, developed that, and then put it out on my own label. Yeah, it's a big undertaking. <laughs> it's a huge undertaking. Yeah. And so I think when I got into it, I thought, oh, well, well, we'll knock this out in 12 months and it'll come out. And then you're like, the rest of your life has to happen <laughs> around it. And you start realizing, okay, well, it's going to take a little longer than you thought. Or yeah. you sit down and you look at your lyrics and you go, well, that's not very good. <laughs> like, you need to re- rewrite that. You know, and so then you're stuck on something for a little while and you go, okay, well, let's get that to fruition or let's get, get that to a happy place. But the time just went by. It got eaten up. In a sense, it was a curse. In a sense, it was a blessing. You were alluding to some of the folks that play on the record. For example, Greg Lease, who's the pedal steel king of Los Angeles and beyond, is a guy I've known for 20 years and I had met him assisting on some sessions when I'd first moved to LA and 94, 95. And Greg was uh, like a first call session guy in LA and he was doing a lot of production work with a label called High Tone. Mm-hmm. And High Tone had Rosie Flores and Dave Alvin. Mm-hmm. Um, but Greg would be involved in the making of all these records. He was either producing or playing on them. Met him through those channels. And a couple of times I'd, you know, kind of bugged him. Oh, yeah, well, this record, yeah, and uh, this song. And the session took two years to put together. <laughs> before it finally happened and it happened because I just happened to reach out at the right time and I said hey still kind of trying to wrap this thing up and really want you on board and he emailed me back and he said well I'm on tour with Jackson Brown right now but I'm flying from Japan to Europe with a stop in LA for three days he says can we do it then and I said yeah yeah well you know I can't get you to my place, but we'll do it at a friend's place. We'll find a place to do this. And, you know, set a time and, you know, like clockwork, there he was <laughs> once he had a time. But it took two years for us to decide to on what to make that, that happen. Did you have the parts already arranged for him to play or did you say improvise or? No, his stuff was basically improvisational. Okay. And that's how he likes to work. He did ask me when we got into the room and said, okay, so what are you looking for on this number? And I kind of knew what I was looking for. I wanted sort of what he did on Matthew Sweet's uh, Smog Moon, which is a beautiful song. Mm. It incorporates pedal steel into it without getting to the alt country place. It allows it to, you know, it's expressive and it's hurtful, but it doesn't have those cheesy country turnarounds and it doesn't sound like, somebody else's music and I always loved the way he approached pedal steel on that song uh, also when you think pedal steel you're thinking about a cleaner tone and I wanted something that was cacked up and a little dirtier as, as well so got him into the room and he says okay so what are you looking for and I said I'm looking for what you played on Matthew Sweet's Smog Moon in 1995 <laughs> <laughs> and um that was enough to get him rolling. But that gave know? him a jump off that point. That gave him a to, jump off point. Yeah. And we did a few passes where the tone was a little cleaner. And then I was kind of urging him. I said, you know, let's let's turn up the amp a little bit. Let's drive the amp a little bit more. Let's get some hurt 
you know, into this. Feel the pain. Exactly. And so we did, and we did a couple of passes with a dirtier tone. I ended up, I think he did about seven or eight passes of the song, and I simply comped those passes together into what I thought was the best presentation uh, of the work that he had done. And it worked out perfectly. The tone does switch, goes from clean to dirty, back from dirty to clean or whatever, but to me, that sounds dynamic. It sounds like he's digging in at points, he's laying laying off at points, but he's fully engaged at all times. It sounds like he's part of the band. It doesn't sound like a part that sort of got stuck over the 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 song at the end kind of kind of thing. You know if that makes sense. I, so are you saying that you took that take and then kind of or, or the, those multiple takes and kind of Frankenstein them into it, one ex- take? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. In 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 music industry speak or recording speak, we call it comping. Comping. We're making a composition. I see. Amongst the various performances that he rendered, okay. and then kind of going, okay, is is that it? And you might go, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. But what about that lick halfway through that third verse? Is that the the right one? Mm-hmm. Maybe you punch it different one in there and hear it does that sound good does that sound oh that sounds better great keep that moving on kind of thing so yeah getting greg's stuff done was was one of those things that it just it took the time and the session happened when it had to happen and we got it done and i was so happy to have to have him on board you know he's, he's one of a great cast of of folks that that play on this thing yeah you had wayne kramer of mc5 uh, members or members, member of Social Distortion, MPX, uh, Seven Seconds, Red Cross, Grapes of Wrath, uh, Northern Pikes, and the Tom Waits and, and Jackson Brown Band. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a laundry list. Yeah. So my friend Danny Magoo played some keyboards on the record, and he was Tom's guy for ages and ages. And also what, did what, uh, keyboards. Kind of error of Tom Waits. Uh, so. That would be like mule variations oh, yeah. years. And so he has. He's that, Danny's that guy that can, he can get a sound out of anything. Like you go to his house and it's like, oh, well, come to the garage and let's look at the collection of keyboards and organs in the garage. <laughs> well, let's go to the, the, the music room where I have, uh, you know, this mid sixties, uh, you know, no name bass that I'm tearing apart and re reassembling, you know, the guy can play anything. He can get a noise out of anything. <laughs> I met him in 94 when I first moved to L.A. We have stayed in touch for 25 years. When this record came together, you know, I knew, oh, Danny's going to get the call. He's going to be in there somewhere. We've got to find a spot for him. And so piecing together the folks that worked on this was a little bit like that. They were professional acquaintances or friends that I had made through the business, either working on their records as a professional during my production and engineering career. Yeah, that's, that's generally how I met all the folks that played on, on, on the record. Wayne, I had worked on his solo efforts for Epitaph when he first moved to L.A. in 94, mm. 95. Uh, the record, the hard stuff, I'm the second engineer on that. So we spent a lot of time in the studio together. Yeah. You sort of find the kindred spirits, or the ones that sort of hear it like, like you hear it. And those are the ones you go grab. You know, you get the ones that understand what you're doing and can bring their own take on it you know, without it getting like to be their thing. You're, you're, you're sort of pulling them out of their comfort zone a little bit, mm-hmm. but you're, you're making wise decisions about who you place where it's sort of like a baseball manager manages a baseball team. Sure. Sometimes 
I don't need a home run. Sometimes I need to get somebody right. to come up and to lay putt. down a bunt yeah. and let move the runner over to second because right. the next guy that comes out is going to knock it out of the park. And I still believe in making records that way and I still believe in the building blocks of making records. You know, you start from the bottom up and you build things. This, The way the record was basically made was the songs were created. I laid down a scratch guitar and a scratch vocal for them then played. I played drums to that and I played you know, keeper guitars to that. And I played bass to that. And I sang on the, on top of those. And that's what, then when I had a core of the songs together, then I went and cherry picked folks to bring in and go, okay, you do your thing here. You do your thing over here. It'll all elements. That's and it. And touches. that's it. Everybody that I brought in sort of had a specific, song that they were going to be working on it wasn't like oh i'm going to play you a bunch of songs and then you choose the one you you know like so you had a game plan i had a game plan the clock know? well you're you're recording at home i am recording at home i have a full recording studio in my house which makes it a little bit easier but it's not like the clock is ticking you could take your time a little bit it is and it isn't like you have to be timely with the folks that you're bringing in sure. they have schedules too That's and they're right. and they have you know a time within that day to work and if I've got to get them to my place, it's a little out of the way. So I have to be considerate of that as well. Definitely. I did have a plan. You know, uh, the first song of the the record, uh, Love Tumbles Into Obsession, I knew that was going to be Johnny Two Bags from Social D playing guitar on that. Like, I wanted what he does on that tune, and it's the perfect, perfect compliment. Capitol Hill... I wanted Kevin Kane from Grapes of Wrath and uh, Northern Pikes to play on that song because that song needed to go to the George Harrison place. And Kevin's an excellent George Harrison understudy, I guess is the word I'll use. He understands why the parts that George played work. He knows how to play those parts. He knows how to get those chord voicings. And so we go, okay, Kevin, you're on this one and you're on this one. And you know, okay, that's taken care of. There's going to be 12 string. There's going to be some lap steel. There's going to be the things that you know you need to kind of finish that idea off. So yeah, with uh, Bobby Adams from Seven Seconds, I've done a lot of punk records as a producer and an engineer. Bobby is one of the best guitar players I've ever worked with in my life. Top five. Guy absolutely shreds. He's got great hands. Never pinches. He's never out of tune. He's never out of time. He's just fluid. And that's doing stuff at 220 beats a minute. Yeah. Fast. Very fast stuff. But not a lot of people know that Bobby's a very accomplished jazz guitar player Mm -hmm. and that jazz is a big part of his vocabulary. I wanted to take him out of what people know him for and I put him on a ballad where he had a chance to shine and play, you know, voicings and melodies that he would never play on a seven second song, but that people need to hear him doing because it's that good. He's that good. So I was trying to definitely, I definitely had a game plan. I was definitely trying to pair people for the right songs and put people in a position where, you know what, if I put you here, it's, it's going to work. It's going to be a success. Uh, less stressful for me. Yeah. <laughs> and also, setting the table so that people can just come in and do what they like to do, not be thinking about it too much. Maybe in that sense, the performances that I was able to capture are a little more fluid or a little more relatable or work with the songs or work with the lyric of the songs because the right person was generally in the right place at, at all times. That's sort of the way I approached it. You know, doing the core, I knew I was going to do the core of the recording myself, that that was, those were the building blocks. But each song sort of has its own guest that comes in and does their thing. In some cases, it has a couple of guests. Not to overshadow the songs or what's being done, but to be there as a compliment and to help you know elevate them and develop them 
musically and sonically. I'd like to talk about some of your production work, but my question is, you had mentioned that writing these songs took a while to kind of formulate. Were you writing songs from the beginning of your music career, or were you just focused on production at that time? I actually was writing stuff when I was younger, but I didn't feel like what I was writing lyrically was relevant or interesting. I thought that it was sort of like, okay, well, this is passable, but it's not good. Like anybody could write that kind of stuff. I had a deeply sort of cathartic experience that launched this to happen, a personal experience. And I think out of that came the spark to drill down into lyric writing and go, okay, what have you got? Let's see. And I basically put myself in the living room for a couple of months, just treated it like a job. I would show up every day in front of the laptop with my coffee and start pecking away. And some days I'd get a couple of lines. Some days I get nothing. That can be really tough when you're looking at a blank screen. Is it hard too if you have that voice in your head that's like a sensor or like saying, mm, that's not good. I'm guilty of that and I'm sure many people are, but you know, they, they sometimes censor themselves too much and then maybe block out ideas that are actually, you know, worth keeping. I was concerned about that because I've set high standards for others in, in my production work. That means I'm going to set high standards for myself as well. Yes, there were those moments where something would pop out and you go, that's it. That's great. Like those two lines, that works. No questions asked. And those are really exhilarating moments when you're like, oh, okay, that just came out. That's pretty good. But there were times when I was looking at the complete blank slate. (laughs) That's torturous. Yeah. And I had a dry erase board up. I was like, okay, well, this idea and this idea. And this, this, these couple of words, that's probably an idea for a song right there. But like getting from there to the point where you have 11 or 12 thought through developed ideas. And de- the word developed is really important. I used to work with a, a very talented writer. And he used to say, Steve, a good idea is a developed idea. And that's one that I've hung on to my entire life. And I'm always the one like when we're producing a record, I'm like, okay, well, when's pre-production? You know, like when do we like have the meeting and like go through all the lyrics and look at the songs and start figuring out what all this, that's the stuff to me, it's almost more exciting than the, than the, uh, okay, well now we track guitar. Okay. (laughs) How's the guitar sound? The guitar sounds good. Okay. Let's track some more guitar. Um, sort of the parts of the parts. Yes. You're ameliorating them and making them better as you go along. But that, that essence of creativity, when everything's sort of coming together and the ideas are flashing at you is wonderful. And, but to address your, your point about sort of the, the, the blank slate or editing, editing part, I did not want to be too uh, heavy on myself as far as judging what was working and what wasn't. So I kind of let myself run wild and just throw stuff down onto the paper. And then you'd kind of go through it and go, okay, well, that's all junk. There's two lines there. That word there sounds cool. You never thought about using that one. Okay, what if we put that here? And so very much like lyrically, conceptually, completely developed from 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 top to bottom. And there were times where I'd kind of look at a page and go, okay, well, the verses are the right idea or that bridge is the right idea. Everything else here is wrong. It doesn't work or it's not tied together into a developed idea. And those are the ones I'd go back to. And a couple of them took weeks and weeks to get to a point where you go, okay, that's good enough. I, I, I like that. I did not try to edit myself consciously so that I would get into a defensive position. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just like let it all come out and then kind of culled through the stuff later on 
and figured out, okay, I like that or I, I like that. But I wasn't going to let editing become problematic or tamping things, tamping things down. Somebody I worked with years ago said, oh, I think you're, I think you, you close down new ideas. You're an idea killer, <laughs> uh, which I don't think is true, but hey, it's good to hear other people's thoughts. And so I think in the back of my mind, I was sort of thinking, just keep it open. Whatever flows, flows, write it down. Doesn't mean you have to use it, but keep the flow happening. Keep the process happening so that you don't get bogged down or you get into one of these places where oh, I've got writer's block or something like that, which never really happened. There was always enough silly ideas to write down on a piece of paper. Um, I just had to focus on which ones were the good ones to extract and hang on to. Do you have someone that you trust that you could play something for and you value their feedback? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's absolutely true. And because this is my first record as a writer, I wanted to be sure that I vetted the songs through a couple of writers that I knew. And a couple of people that knew me, knew me 20 years ago, 30 years ago, know me now. And so I selected a couple of friends who uh, who's, who are brutally honest, whose opinions matter to me, and who I could trust to be forthright with me about the material that I was working on. And I handed it all off to them and said, go through this stuff and read this and tell me what doesn't work. Because I wanted to cover my butt. And because sometimes when you're locked in a room listening to nothing but your own voice for a couple of months. You go crazy. <laughs> yeah, you go crazy. Or you start thinking you start thinking to yourself, well, that's pretty good. And like, yeah. no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I definitely was conscious uh, about putting the work into the hands of folks whose opinions I respected. And I told myself that's part of a healthy uh, process. It doesn't mean you've got to take everything that they say per rote, yeah. but you should be listening to those who know you and try and get some sort of perspective on whether things are working or not um, before you decide, oh, I'm going to spend, you know, a few hundred hours recording all these songs, and yeah. <laughs> inviting all these other people into play and getting all this stuff done. You want to make sure that you have the, the record that you want to make. Do you find that they give uh, those um, individuals or, or when you ask for feedback in general, honest opinions? Because many people are very quick to be like, oh, it's great. Yeah. But I mean, it sounds like the people that you're asking are not those types of people, but you know, sometimes generally you can get that sort of feedback, which makes you feel good, but doesn't have any value. Yeah. I mean, the folks that I went to are journeyman songwriters themselves, folks that have been writing for 30 or 40 years since they were kids. So they're going to tell you if a bridge doesn't work, or they're going to tell you if a melody is sort of not memorable, or, or they're going to say, you know what, that lyric right there, I don't like that. I don't like the way there's another way to say that. And um, I approached two individuals. One came back to me and he was sort of, I, I really like this body of work. This is good. And then another one came back to me and says, I really like this body of work. It's good. I would look at this line here and this line here and that line there. Mm -hmm. Nobody came back to me and said, you know, the songs are bad or the songs aren't interesting. You know, there was support there for what I was doing. They got what I was doing. But one of the individuals was able to hone down a little bit more and say, oh, like, maybe you should think about saying that a different way or this a different way. And some of those suggestions I took to heart and changed. And some of them I didn't because uh, I felt it was coming from the right place. But I most definitely took the material to somebody 
and said, what have I got here? Do I have a record here or do I have a, a pipe dream here or what do I have? You know, I didn't want to involve others unless I felt confident that I had something moving forward that could be heard and make a difference or that people would listen to and go, okay, yeah, that's, that's a real record. That's, those are real songs. Those, those songs have merit. And that was sort of the driving force, I think, in getting to the point where it was, was ready to record. But yeah, the process did involve others looking into what it, what it was that I was doing. All right, let's check out a track from the album Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. This is the song Preemptive Strike. Um, about mid nineties, 94. Yes. And you get to LA. Yes. Um, what brought you here? What, what was the scene like? Where were you living? What were you doing? So I, when I first got to LA, I lived in Venice for the first like year and a half, which uh, I enjoyed, but commuting to work in Hollywood was, 
it was too much of an issue. At the time, I was working at a place, a studio called West Beach Recorders. Yeah. And West Beach was, uh, at the time, was uh, co-owned by Brett Gerowitz, who owns Epitaph, Mm -hmm. Epitaph Records, and a gentleman named Donald Cameron, who is the sort of main engineer and day-to-day manager of the facility. And uh, they needed a new engineer because their engineer, Joe, had just gone through this earthquake and approached them and just said, guys, this this is it. I'm not doing this anymore. My girlfriend and I were going to to Florida and we're going to ride into the sunset in Florida. And I had actually been in LA the week before the earthquake, dropping off resumes at any studio that I thought I could maybe get a gig at. And at the time, I think I dropped off 65 resumes. Wow. That tells you how many studios you know, were operational in LA at the time. Yeah. And there's not 65. It's not the case anymore. (laughs) Not the case anymore. I had pounded the pavement, was hoping for something to happen. And I flew out of LA back up to Canada where I was living at the time. And the earthquake, the Northridge earthquake literally happened overnight. I missed it by about 10 hours or something like that. And that was like the last flight out sort of thing. And that created the opportunity at at West Beach, the need for an engineer. And I took that job. And then after about three or four years there, I was, had built it enough clientele of my own that I started going out independently producing records for, you know, whoever whoever would hire me. And that, that scene at that time was busy. Uh, Mid-90s, that Offspring record was just blowing up. Yeah. Uh, the second Rancid record, which I ended up doing some second engineering on right when I moved to L.A. The second Rancid record was just about to pop. Uh, it was a the, hot time, the, too. It's totally yeah. hot yeah. time. The first uh, One of the first major uh, productions that I worked on in West Beach was the punk, No Effects Punk and Drublick yeah. uh, LP, which went on to you know do gold. I think it might be platinum now actually might have gone might have gotten platinum so there was a ton of stuff happening in in west beach at that time as far as like the core of california or southern california punk rock but there was other stuff going on like for instance i had mentioned earlier greg lease and high tone records so there were other independent labels in that scene at that time that were all prolific and all putting out of ton of material you know and the business just didn't really show much downside at that time yeah but boy like Four, five, six years later, every it was sort of over, you know? Was that because of home recording? Or is I that because it, I think it was because record sales just went in the tank through just, through LimeWire. Gotcha. Um I can remember Napster and yeah, all that Napster. Stuff. I can remember driving down Sunset one day, leaving a mixing session at, at A and M studios on Sunset in La Brea. And I was driving down Sunset to go home. And there was a huge billboard on the side of the the road, and it said, rip, mix, burn. Three words, mix, rip, burn, with three CDs Mm -hmm. on the billboard. And it said Apple at the bottom, and that was all that it said on the billboard. And I looked at it, and I said to myself, it's over. Like that's a wrap. We're, it's a wrap. Yeah. And I probably should have thought about like going into entertainment law or something at that time. Yeah. You know, uh, 20 years later, I'm still making records <laughs> and now apparently making them for myself in an industry that doesn't really buy or it doesn't sell that much product anymore. And we definitely suffered from a, a place where we had good budgets to record records and you could make a living making records, you know, uh, you could, as, as a producer, an engineer, there was enough work going around that you could 
make a decent living at it. And for bands, there were labels. You could get signed. You could get an advance to make a record. Might not sell gazillions, but there was a way to do it. And then that started falling away pretty quickly to the point where folks were just sort of like, well, what do we do? Like, we were just sort of waiting for a solution to come along. Like, somebody's going to make it like the old days, right? But nobody was going to make it like the old days. Those days are gone. And so it's been, a. I mean, for folks like me, in a way... I think also it's part of the why I've decided to explore songwriting more because there's a creative outlet there. But if you can get some work published or if you can get some work placed, there is Licensing. Yeah, there's revenue there for that, you know? And I do have a partner that I'm working with for this record that's exclusively dealing with sync uh, for the record and getting it placed. And that definitely wasn't an afterthought. Before I decided to release this, I, fig- I said to myself, okay, well, you've got to find a partner that you can work with and trust to handle that part of the business or nothing's going to happen like that definitely has to happen you know for me to put a band together and do a couple of shows which i just did we just played san diego and we yeah. played la the redwood bar yeah, at the last week yeah. putting those shows together is time consuming and you've got to rehearse and you've got to get guys to play and you got to pay guys to play and it's it's a whole other conundrum yeah. you know the other things that i knew were important like sync or things that I started working on, you know, a year ago. I'm trying to put that in place so when the record finally came along, okay, yeah, well, there is somebody to handle that, and that's what they do. So I've tried to be organized about the, pr- the process and tried to put myself in a position to succeed wherever it be, whether that be on the publishing end of it or the sync end of it, whether that be putting a cool band together to play live or, you know, whether that be getting the right people into the studio to play on, on, on the record. Mm-hmm. I've tried to set the bar pretty high and tried to be consistent about the process, I guess you could say. As somebody who operates a label yourself, Porterhouse, do you see a viable way for record companies and people that are DIY releasing records to turn a profit and... There are so many tools now like social media, iTunes, there's Bandcamp, whatever. There's countless things that I don't probably even know about. Right. But with the decline in opportunities that you're mentioning, is that replaced with these other alternative web sources or it'll never really take the place? I don't think it'll ever take the place as a whole. Like we're not going to have Tower Records come back and build a new store on, it's not gonna on Sunset. Back from like, the dead. We're not, we're not going to bring it back from the yeah. dead. One of the things as a label owner that I've pursued and has worked well for helping keep the label alive has been vinyl. And I have a series of reissues that I've done. They're all sort of formative or excellent records of their time. I don't have a lot of catalog, but the catalog that I have is good catalog. Um, I did a reissue of the Urge Overkill uh, saturation record about a year ago. It's been out, yeah, it's been out about a year. And that was a record that was up for a 25th anniversary and nobody was doing anything with it. It's one of my favorite records of the 90s. That's such a great sounding record, great songs, great performances. I thought, okay, well, if I can get a license to put that on vinyl and reissue reissue that on vinyl, that'll be a good opportunity. So I chased that down, took those meetings and got that to happen. Um, there's some other catalog that I control. There's some Circle Jerks catalog. There's some Gun Club catalog. Cool. That stuff keeps the lights on. Yeah. That stuff that each month I know those records go out, they're classics, they will sell. And so that keeps the lights on at the label. That keeps me able to do fun things. Like about a year and a half ago, I signed Chip Kinman from the Dills and Rank and File mm-hmm. uh, to a deal for his new band called Ford Maddox Ford. Uh, the band owns all their own 
own masters. They just basically brought the stuff in and said, okay, we want to get this out. Can you press this for us and package it for us and market it for us and, and, and distribute it for us? And I said, yeah, I have all that stuff in place. But I think Chip might have been attracted, you know, in the sense that I've been working with some old Slash catalog, Slash Records catalog, which is where, you know, rank and file kind of cut their teeth. So the those old opportunities have created some new opportunities. And working with Chip has been a fantastic experience. Um, they've actually got shows coming up uh, this weekend. They're playing with the Long Riders at the Roxy, and they're playing oh, cool. uh, with the Dead Kennedys oh, wow. at the Ventura, Majestic Ventura, oh, Ventura awesome. Theater. So Chip's still doing it a lot. He, uh, he is uh, involved in that, uh, uh, in the book that just came out that was uh, penned by uh, Tom DeSavia and uh, John Doe mm-hmm. of X mm-hmm. called uh, More Fun in the New World. So Chip contributed to that. He's, he's been, he's been, uh, Chip's been very active on a lot of, on a lot of fronts been doing sort of a Dills reunion kind of thing since his brother passed at the beginning of uh, March was it March May of last year so it's been great working with with chip he's totally driven loves what he does wants his stuff to be the best it can be um, great opportunity for the label to, to 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 work with him so the label sort of goes back and forth between working on you know what it knows it can bring in revenue with which is vinyl reissues and uh, tempering that with some baby band stuff like Chip's new band, Ford Maddox Ford, or my, my, my band, the Stephen Bradley band. What do you think drives that nostalgia for vinyl that seemed to emerge maybe, what, five, ten years ago? Yeah, I think it's been it's at least... resurgence in Yeah, vinyl? it's been about five or ten. Yeah. Um, at the time, the label was just doing compact discs. And on a just on a lark, I thought, okay, we had some... Circle Jerks catalog that we controlled at the time. I thought, well, what about doing a reissue of one of these records that you control, like, you know, Wild in the Streets, which we did. And we pressed that and sent it out. I realized one day, looked, looking over the statements, it was like, none of the vinyl is coming back. We're getting returns on compact discs from time to time, but we're getting zero returns on vinyl. Everything that we press ships through and sells. And that's when I started realizing something's happening that you know, we were just on the cusp. This you is, see it. yeah, I could see it. And I thought I need to go find some more vinyl licenses and we need to do more of this stuff because mm-hmm. this stuff is working. And so I sort of jumped in wholeheartedly to the point now where Porterhouse has accounts with all three of the major labels and I license from all three of the major labels and bring on, uh, products that I love, but generally speaking, those are products that I really love. Like it's a record that means something to me. It's a record that I liked when I was a kid, or it's a record that sonically, you know, is just unbeatable. Exactly. So all the stuff generally on the label side is stuff that I, uh, really have an affinity for, you know, I, I I reissued the, um, the all pummel record, you know, uh, which features the, the descendants guys. Mm -hmm. And nobody had touched that record since it came out in 94. I think they had maybe pressed 500 original copies on on black vinyl at the time. And I went online one day and I was kind of looking through records. I'm like, whatever happened to that all record? You know, because it's a fabulous record. Great power pop record. Some of their best writing of all time. And I got onto Discogs and I looked at it and I'm like, there's only a few copies out there and they're going for $300 a piece. Yeah. I'm like, I can probably sell some of these at 19.99. Yeah. <laughs> and that record is done okay. It doesn't do gangbusters, but it's done okay. You know, finding those ones that have fallen between the cracks, that's where the challenge is on the, on the vinyl reissue thing. It's also sort of changed my thought on 
the on what we press as a format. Like I don't really generally do CDs anymore. Well, nobody really plays them anymore. They don't. And uh, I think newer vehicles don't even have CD players. Yeah. I, my old band, we made CDs and then we were selling them. Then we couldn't sell them. Then we were giving them away and people yeah. were like, this is cool, but I have nothing to play this on. Yeah. And that's sort of why the vinyl, having vinyl come full circle and being able to do digital downloads packaged with vinyl is great. I think that there is, like you were saying, like what's the draw? And I think part of the draw really is going back to having something large and physical in your hands that, yeah. that makes you feel like, I see value in this. This has intrinsic value. You know, one of the reasons I always look at packaging very closely and making sure that I'm making the right decisions is concerns packaging. I can remember with Chip give, running over, he's like, well, what's it going to look like? And I yeah. said, well, it's going to look like punk rock and blues, <laughs> you know? And like we ended up doing this unhappy face logo on a blue cover and it sort of looks like the germs. Yeah. It sort certainly. of looks like the germs circle on a, yeah. on a blue logo and I says well that's his punk rock right I, I can look at that and I go that that's punk but the, the vinyl thing it's it's become part of the, the vernacular because yeah people wanted to go back people like the idea of have something something in their hands the idea of pairing the digital download with the vinyl so you're getting the best best of both worlds yeah. that works really really well vinyl is easy to rack it's easy to look through in shops and and I and I think when iTunes became big in 05 06 07 when that was starting to grow and people went over to the digital side I don't think they were ever going to go back to CDs at that at that point they're like oh well I have the quality of the CD but I don't have an object physical to deal thing. a physical object to take up room great let's do that you know I think you're right, though. There's something to be said about holding something and feeling a connection to it. I recently got into tapes again, which right. I know a lot of audio people will say that they sound really compressed and sound shitty, but I like tapes because I feel a connection to them. That's how I got into music right. on a Walkman, listening in that delay process of going to the store, then you buy the tape, then you go home and unpackage it. It's not like an instant download or just get it for free on YouTube or whatever. Right. But there's that kind of hunt of going on Discogs or wherever and then finding this rare tape and like, oh shit, like I yeah. can't believe that's on tape. And then getting it, then you have to wait in the mail for it to come and you unpack. It's like a whole like ritual sort of. Oh, know? for sure. I can remember growing up in the 80s in Canada and the first NWA record came out <laughs> and you couldn't get it Yeah, because they decided, oh, well, there's this song. You right, know? right. Fuck the police yeah, on it. Say. And so we're not going to import that into yeah, Canada. Right. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. Yeah. It was a huge deal. Yeah. The PMR, PRMC, PMRC was a big deal. The parental, you know, yeah. uh, the t uh, what was it? Tip, Tip O'Neill, Tipper, Tipper Gore, Tipper Gore oh, right, uh, started right, that yeah. program and we're like, oh, we're going to censor music. Yeah. And so the it's, the, it's the old thing like yeah. where uh, uh, America sneezes and Canada catches a cold. But, you know, up in Canada, everybody was up in arms. Oh, there's spreading music with a detrimental message to society. Really? <laughs> so I can remember actually going to New York to Tower Records and buying that record because yeah. you could not get it in Canada. Couldn't get it in Canada. So talk about going through hoops to get the record you wanted. You yeah, know? yeah. But it was sort of like that for a while and things weren't that easy to find. Now you can get with the with the advent of internet commerce, you can get pretty much anything you want. You can go on Discogs and find if you want the Ruby pressing of Gun Club's Fire of Love, you can find it. It's, you know, three hundred dollar record, but you can get the first pressing and the jacket's probably in decent shape. If you want that NWA C D, you can probably find it. Like the stuff is 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 out there. And yeah, there's a lot of what is going on with music right now, streaming, is all about instant gratification. Just, right. oh yeah, turn this 
turn this on now. But that zaps kind of some of the enjoyment out of it. It kind of does. Yeah. It's like it's like eating a candy bar. It's like a quick euphoria, but then you crash. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm still not sold on where to fit streaming in the whole scenario for my record what i did was i could i'd look at the the income from streaming from other artists that i was working with on my label and i could see okay well this doesn't bring in any revenue this is not worth our time um and so when it came to doing my record and putting it out i thought to myself what are you going to do are you going to put the whole record out and let it stream and i thought no that doesn't make any sense i said and what i've done is i've basically taken the three singles There's a a pop single, a rock single, and a ballad single. And I put those three songs with their own cover art up on Spotify. So if folks discover it through Spotify and they find it, there's enough there to give them a taste. There's three songs, enough so that they know what it's about. But as far as going on Spotify and giving the record away for free, it just wasn't a choice that made any sense to me. I'll use their platform as as enticement, but you'll still have to come to Porterhouse or a record store to buy to the, get the to get the record the full length LP with the with the download. Do code. they pay you for plays, or is it like a fraction of a penny? It's fractions and fractions of hundreds of cents per play. So it's basically nothing. It's nothing yeah. when you look at it. You know, uh, I'm not saying that it's nothing for a band like Metallica. Sure, right? Yes, they're 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 plays. getting, but for small independent artists, the the amount that you're getting off of Spotify is negligible. It mm. it is pretty much negligible. So I've tried to leverage their platform. And instead of engaging with it, partially engaging with it, giving them some content that I feel is valuable content, but holding back the rest of it. So you put out like a little teaser. Basically, Basically, yeah. And I'm not doing Apple Music either. I'm doing iTunes, but I'm not doing Apple Music. So I'm not fully engaging with the streaming services right now. Mm. I'm going to kind of float it out there and and see how that works. Can we kind of geek out with some recording stuff? Sure. So... You recorded a lot of amazing bands, Less Than Jake, MXPX, Blink-182, Pepper. I wouldn't call it pop punk or power pop or... No, I think I think for my, for my record, it's definitely a power pop record. I'm known as a pop punk producer. Yeah. Uh, just by virtue of the bands I've worked with and the stuff that had, had some success. You know, MXPX and uh, Tsunami Bomb, two records that I did in the mid-90s that ended up somehow being on Rolling Stone's top 50 pop-punk records of all time. That's like, cool. That's pretty cool. I yeah. never never imagined there would be a top 50 pop-punk yeah. <laughs> records of all time, but apparently there is. Those obviously were, were good years in the sense that I was being very productive and getting a lot of work done mm. and stuff was getting out there. But like the, in those days, working with bands of that stature, you knew that you were going to come out of the gate and you're going to sell a hundred thousand or 200,000 records. Like it's kind of a given off, yeah. off the bat, yeah, just right out of the, yeah. that, that's kind it. Like, you know, the bands have a big enough following. Uh, they've got good songs. They've got support from a label. This is going to move in the right direction. And of course that, you know, for everybody has, 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 has faded away, you know, with time. But I, I know that all of those bands still do really well. And all of those bands play live a lot. Yeah. Um, less than Jake is constantly touring. MXPX yeah. is still is still touring. Uh, Pepper, you know, I follow Esad on uh, and the guys on Twitter, and they've always got something going on. Yeah, um, they are recording, but the lion's share of their revenue is most definitely coming from the live experience from and gigging and touring. yeah, exactly. 
Um, and I, I think back in the day, it was a little bit more evenly split. You'd see some royalties from, from records. You'd see money from merch and from playing live. But now it seems like all of the ba- the eggs are in the playing live basket. So you're constantly sort of on the road. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, like Mike from MXPX, he's kind of got it down. Like he has a family, he's got two kids. And so he'll do the weekend thing where they'll go out and they'll go, okay, we're going to play these two cities this weekend. And then we're going to take a week off and then we're going to play these two cities on that weekend. So they're not overplaying. They're playing just enough. They're playing in the markets that they want to play in and they can make it a scenario that is doable. You know, it's not too hard on a family's life and it's not too hard on an individual's life yeah well that's what's great too about being in this area right because there's so many places that you could do uh yeah there are in the in you i mean you could tour just tour la you know there's yeah. enough oh venues God, in la yeah. and orange county to tour but san diego's close san francisco's close las vegas is close you have a number of markets phoenix is not that far away right so you have other markets that that uh, you can work in and uh, i mean i guess i'll start finding out about that a little bit we did two shows last week to kick off this record but one of them was in san diego at casbah yeah a venue that i love and tim mays who's been doing so, uh, you know punk rock shows in san diego since the 80s that seemed like a natural you know is to try and get into that venue and do that venue and the redwood was the redwood was a lot of fun uh, as well i like the uh the laid backness of of the redwood it's yeah. it's a punk rock it's a shit kicking bar <laughs> yeah 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 that was a in fuzz we trust yeah show. yeah, yeah eddie, cool. eddie eddie lopez yeah sweet what i wanted to ask you about was sort of the sound of those bands that you were recording right so for that power pop let's call it sound are you layering multiple guitars? Uh, is there like a trick or someone, you know, that maybe there's a band that's listening that's doing their own record or something and they would like to, like a little recording trick of layering guitars? Maybe some are distorted, some are clean. Right, like, yeah. So those records um, are all kind of from an era when I was following very specific rules as far as record making is concerned. And most of those records start with a click track, a scratch guitar, and then drums played to that. Then we do guitars, layer rhythm guitars after that, dump the scratch track and and layer guitars, then start with vocals, start laying bass. But it's all built from the ground up, sort of like a from drums up, you know, based on a a click track. Um, As far as the techniques used on that body work, they're all a little bit different, but... In some ways, they're all kind of samey. Um, there's definitely on the the records I do. There's always a blend of dirty guitars and clean guitars. Um, I find that it's impossible to get guitars to sound big enough with one mic in front of one cabinet being pushed by one amp and one guitar. It doesn't really work. Um, and so, uh, years ago, I had purchased. Um, a splitter where you can actually go in with one guitar and come out six different outputs and run six different amps at the same time. And all the outputs are buffered and isolated so that you don't have impedance issues between the amps. But and they're the, all in the same room? or Basically, they? yeah, all in the same room. They might be isolated a little bit from each other, but you can actually you know, mic them up and have sort of an individual tone on a fader. And... You're also, you know, using a couple of different kind of kinds of microphones to kind of broaden the scope of the of the tone, but doing a lot of blending between clean amps and dirty amps, both running at the same time, one performance, 
and then taking the clean and kind of pushing up the, the, the dirty with it. And so that kind of gives you, sometimes what ends up happening is when you're trying to record those dirty guitars, uh, you end up lacking presence. They end up kind of scooped out and there's a lot of distortion and it's moving a lot of like low end, but it's not moving any mids and you want mids. You need mids. Mids are what makes things sound close. It's right. what makes th things sound uh, uh, in the same room, you know? And um, I got to the point where I could blend, you know, two or three different apps at a time and came up with a system that worked well for, for me. Um, the splitter, I also use that a lot doing bass guitar, uh, tracks because I can run two or three different amps off it and run a couple of different DI boxes off of it as well. And then blend all that sort of together to get a tone. Are you micing, you're micing the bases or you're going direct in with the bases? No, I'm micing the bases. Um, I'm using both direct and I'm using, uh, mics, uh, like a full production bass rig for me is probably three amps. I've got an SVT. An Ampeg yeah, SV2, yeah. and I'm running mostly, I'm capturing mostly high mids and highs from that. I'm running a, an Ampeg Portaflex, like a small, Smaller, yeah. small, yeah. like one, one speaker cabinet with maybe a 12 or a 15 in it for mids. And then for the low end, I'm running a solid state bass head, like a Galleon Kruger through 412s. And then basically taking those and stacking those three tones together to make one sound and then throwing a little direct box in there as well. The direct is nice for some clean and it's nice for some, for some presence. Um, the trick is kids that you have to delay your DI to the amps because the DI signal always arrives a little bit earlier than the signal that goes filtered all the way through so the amp a and a speaker. Off. So they're always a little bit off. Yeah. They're always a little out of phase. So generally what you want to do is you want to take your DI tracks and you want to put those through a very, good delay something that spits out what goes into it uh and then take that and blend your delayed tracks of the of the bass di with the bass mics and it takes a little while to find the sweet spot but you can just basically adjust the delay on the delay and you'll tell when it all sort of hits at the same time and comes into phase you're probably talking about only delaying it between five six seven milliseconds mm. a very small small amount of time but when you hear the effect of everything being sort of being put time aligned and you being put into it. phase you can hear it and generally then what i'll do on bass is all of those inputs maybe i've got two mics on each cabinet and i've got a couple of di's all of that stuff gets blended down one bus down one compressor with one EQ on it and goes to one track on, on tape. That's it. I don't go wow. back later on and try and piece together what happened. Yeah. I, you know, or have like burning like huge amounts of hard drive space. Cause you're laying down like, you know, six tracks of bass for one performance. It doesn't make any sense really to me. So, but those, um, I'm sorry, but those are all separate tracks that you're recording at once though, right? So you have them all separated? No. You have them all in one track? I have, I, I basically have inputs on the console for the different microphones and the direct boxes. Those I blend down to one bus and to one track. So I'm com it's, it's the ham factor. The chicken makes a contribution to breakfast, but the pig is, the pig is committed. <laughs> the pig is committed. And so when you are striving to get that tone you don't want to have to recreate it later. You simply get it to the, the point where it sounds good, where it cuts through the guitars and sounds good. I'm a bass last guy. I do guitars first and I do bass afterwards uh -huh. um, for a variety of reasons, um, but it works better. Um, and basically, once, 
once we're working on a performance for a, a new song or laying down the tr- the bass track for that new song, the myriad of inputs that I'm using that's all going to come down one bus, one compressor, one EQ, and go to wow. one one track on tape. That probably saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of time. A lot of time too. Uh, just because you recorded something doesn't mean you're going to end up mixing it. Right. So I'm not one that wants to waste other people's time. It's like you got a bass tone. Here's the bass tone. One fader. You push it up. It should sound like a bass. You know, and it should all be there. Lows, mids, and highs. It should all be there. Um, you don't want to send somebody tracks to mix, and they're like, "Oh, well, here's like eight tracks from this bass performance, but I'm not sure what's in phase or what's out of phase, right. and I'm not sure which sounds good." Or so you just go ahead and do it yourself and figure yeah. it out. Like, first of all, it's not cool. Second of all, they're never going to get it back the way you visualized it. So, I'm I have no issues with making the commitment and making the um, making the decision really making the executive decision that's going to be the base the base tone on this record and here we go so start recording yeah, press let's roll let's let's roll like make yeah. it go red you know um and i think that over the years i've gotten feedback from people that are like oh i really like your system or that works well or like you made it really easy for me i can remember doing a less than jake record and chris lord algae was mixing the record and we got to uh dropping off the tapes and uh and the track sheets so they could figure out what was going on. And I said to um, the second engineer, I said, okay, well, here's the, here's the track sheets. I hope they're, they're legible. And the second says, oh, well, Chris, was never, Chris is never going to see any of this stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so what they would do is they'd take the analog tracks, they would dump it all onto a 48-a Sony digital machine, and uh-huh. they, would, they would cross-patch whatever tracks that you had to where they liked them. So, for instance on my multi-track uh, hi-hat is always track one hmm. put try hi-hat on an edge track because there's always plenty of hi-hat coming through everything on the drum kit mm-hmm. if you've got to lose a track or a, tr- a track gets buckled or tore it's going to be the edge track on the tape machine if it gets mishandled in the transport so mm-hmm. yeah record something in the edge track you don't really need in a pinch so that would be hi-hat but that doesn't mean chris lord algae wants hi-hat on strip one on his ssl when he mixes he wants hi-hat on four or he wants it on five so all of your tracks are cross-patched onto their tape machine they're dumped onto their tape machine in the order that they want them to come up and when you come to mix and chris steps behind the console all of your inputs are coming up on the inputs that he's already predetermined he's already got an insert compression insert over top of it he's already got an eq insert if he wants it everything's already done and he basically pushes up the faders and starts dumping mixes and he does two mixes a day uh you know full full songs and that's with vocal uh vocal outs like instrumental mixes vocal ups uh, any you know any changes he wants to make but he's doing two a day and he's charging three or four grand a mix yeah so you know they want to get the two songs in a day. They're right. not going to mess around with your track sheets. They're not going to mess around with your tracks. Everything goes into their system it's and it comes up exactly where they where they want it and that's how those guys do it. You know, and it's funny because of all the rec- records you hear on the radio, you know, on rock radio in this country, they're probably mixed by six guys. Wow. Mix everything that's that you hear insane. on on the on the on the radio. And so, yeah, they do have their system and they're not going to give up that chunk of work or that share of work you know they're 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 fighting to keep their work the best it can be every day and they're working to keep their 
prices where they're just affordable and you know but they they have to rent rooms and they have to rent gear and they have to pay second assistance and they have to pay insurance and they have businesses to run as well the andy wallaces of this world you know um they're just the guys that figured out well this is how you do it you know and they've you know, they've built a system for themselves and, uh, and, a, and a course of work for themselves that, that works and it's pretty foolproof. Yeah. Because you know, people line up to go to go to their studios to get their records mixed, you know. Has that process changed a lot with digital recording compared to when you started or were making some of these records that I w- I'm assuming was on tape at that time? Yeah, I think it has changed in the sense that the, you know, digital, you know, we used to have maybe two tape machines locked together so like a 16 track and a 24 track or two 24 tracks and you lock them together you'd lose a couple of tracks for time code and you'd probably your your edge track like next to your time code track you might not print on so you don't have 48 you maybe have 44 so 44 tracks but then all of a sudden you've got pro tools and they're like oh well a core system will get you 96 tracks so then people start going oh well that's pretty cool we can record 10 different versions of this guitar solo (laughs) we can record like you were saying oh like all those bass tracks you're just going to print those to extra tracks and blend them later like yeah you could do that but it leaves a lot of interpretation open you know you're either going to go for it or you're not i'm sure that when these the big mixers the big guys the a-list guys when they're getting tracks now they're probably way more tracks on them than there were when they used to be but at the same time they've got a kind of uh, let them know, okay, yeah, we're, this is the preferred take or this is the preferred take here. Use this take here. You can't really go in and expect these A-list guys to start fishing through all your material. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. And you don't really get to kind of, when you get your mix, you don't really kind of get to go, oh, well, yeah, the guitar on the left channel, that should have been higher in the chorus part. Sort of what they mix is what you get, you know, and they'll charge for, they'll charge, they'll probably do one recall for free. And after that, they're going to charge you for any changes. So, you know, that's sort of the way that, that, that part of it works. And I'm sure that they uh, have probably at their insistence have had to say, okay, well, here's the price for 48 tracks of audio. Here's the price for 72 tracks of audio or 64 tracks of audio. But they've probably at this point set up a system so they don't completely get inundated, like (laughs) take on more than they want to take on in the course of their regular work. Is that totally to their discretion? Does the band say, well, hey, we'd like, you know, this louder in this section, like you were saying, guitar more pan to the right or whatever? Not really. Like the A-list guys sort of just do what they do. And that's why you're sending it to them because that's what they do. So they do their thing. And what you get back is generally what you get back. And as I say, they might do a recall. They might do one recall for a batch, you know, um, but they're not going to go down the rabbit hole and, you know, yeah, make, your sisters, make your sister's tweet. zither louder because <laughs> your mother complained the zither wasn't loud enough on that track. You know, right. they're going to go, okay, well, the zither's where it goes. That's where it that's is. That's, that's where it. it stays. That's sorry. <laughs> um. When was your introduction to music? How young were you when you started playing? Or do you remember there was there a band or a moment where you're like, this is going to be my life? Yeah, so I started fairly young. I mean, they start young now, like really young. People start like at like eight, nine, ten now, Playing? right? Yeah, and they're yeah. virtuosos. The yeah. kids are virtuosos. Uh, you watch it sometimes on Instagram. Like I watched this kid the other day. He couldn't be more than like six years old playing the drums, and he was phenomenal. Right, yeah. And, and you're just like, like dude. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, how did you, how did you learn that? Yeah. Um, 
I started, really started getting into it when I was about 15 or 16 years old and uh, was in high school and had sort of been raised on what suburban kids are raised on, you know, back in those days, Van Halen records and yeah. stuff like that, you know. And um, then sort of punk rock came along and I, I knew that I enjoyed music, like my Kiss records and my Cheap Trick records. Those were good. But then this punk rock thing came along and I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And that Vancouver scene had a very vibrant uh, punk rock scene. There was lots of bands uh, performing, recording. Uh, it was just a happening place to be at the time. And there was a couple of bands that came out of that scene. One was called DOA. Yeah. And they're sort of regarded as a cornerstone Canadian punk rock band. Yeah. But I can recall listening to their first LP, Something Better Change, which isn't even that much of an upbeat punk rock record. It's more like a punk rock record by a bunch of guys that had been listening to a lot of Sabbath. Yeah. You know, it was kind of slower, a little, yeah, sludgy. And, um, but I could hear what they were doing and going, this is really cool. This is way different than what they're playing on the radio. And so I started exploring it more with friends and I realized, oh, there's like a wellspring of, of music going on, you know, and I discovered the pistols and I discovered the clash. And how'd you discover those bands? Record stores? Friends. Friends Friends were playing them. Oh, listen to this record. Listen to this record. Oh, you'll dig this. And all of a sudden it was like, instead of like this, this palette of rock to choose from, there was a whole other different kind of thing going on. And I can remember going to like a, a, a high school dance and there was a battle of the bands, like three bands were playing. And one of the bands was sort of like a like a 50s rockabilly but punk rock kind of thing and i saw them and i was like whoa the energy of this it's like way better than the 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 costumed rock and roll you know like queen was huge then right it was like if you didn't have a cape <laughs> you couldn't be in a band you had to have a cape you know but here they were here were these guys they were doing it i think they were called the edsels and they were doing it without capes <laughs> You know, they just had some guitars that they turned up and it was like, I was just blown away by the energy. I was, I was caught up in it and I realized that there's all this other stuff that's going on out there that you don't know anything about. And there, there wasn't much of a musical education in my family. There were no, my folks were folks of the forties and the fifties. Uh, there was no counterculture in their lives. They didn't own a Beatles record. They didn't even own a Beatles record. They owned Tom Jones records. They owned Johnny Mathis records. They owned Buck Owens records. So there wasn't any sort of formative way for me to understand rock. I'd hear rock records to my cousins if I'd go and visit uh, over to my uncle and my aunts and see what my cousins were playing. Oh, they're listening to the Steve Miller band. Okay, well, I should probably get a Steve Miller record, <laughs> you know. But the, when the punk rock stuff started coming along, I realized this is way different and this means something uh, means something different, not more, not less, but it, it means something different. Chord yeah, it struck you. a chord, and yeah. I knew that is something I have to explore. So, sort of within a year of that, I'd sort of been exposed to that. And I was like, okay, well, punk rock made it seem like you could pick up an instrument and start playing. So I was like, okay, well, I, I always wanted to play drums, so um, I rented a drum kit and started playing some drums, and it's just something that sort of came naturally and. I got better with it over time. I certainly wasn't good at it, but it was something where I could get a noise out of it and it made a good noise. Mm -hmm. It sounded sort of like what I heard on recordings. You know, you could kind of hear the separation of the kick, the snare, and the hat. And, and 
they had their own space and I could, I could hear the time in it. And then I was sort of like, okay, let's, let's explore that. So, you know, there's a couple of high school bands playing, you know, time playing that, that kind of stuff. And when I went on to college, I had another band that I played in and, but none of these were really serious bands, you know, they were just sort of, I don't know, things we were doing or things to pass the time. There was never any great hope of like, oh, this will turn into something. Mm. Um, but then as I got older and did records for other people, I sort of realized, well, yeah, you know, a new record can make a difference. And all the good songs haven't been written yet. There's yeah. still some good songs to write. And I think going into my record, I sort of took that approach. It was like, I still think there's some good songs to write and I'm going to try and write those songs. And I am going to focus on the influences that I like or made a difference to me earlier on power pop stuff like the who like Matthew sweet, uh, like teenage fan club bands that I just really happen to like, or that I get mm -hmm. bands like the clash bands, like the Beatles. Like I was listening to one of the songs on the record the other day and I was listening to this chorus and I sort of changed the figure uh, the rhythm figure of the course the third time around and I'm listening to it and I'm going, that's London calling. That's literally how Topper Hedden would have played the drums on London calling right there. <laughs> and of course you don't hear it as yeah. it's going down. It and wasn't intentional. And it wasn't intentional. I wasn't trying to steal something from them, but then you kind of go back and you're like, well, steal from the best if you're going to do it. <laughs> and what do you got coming up next? Got so, um, I'm, the next couple of months are going to be spent working this record from a label perspective. I'm going to take off my my musician's hat. And I'm going to put on my label hat and I'm going to go, how do we get people to talk about this record or how do we get this record played and who do we need to talk to to get that done? So the record's already gone out to radio. It's been shipped to about 300 stations. Um, press is just kind of starting talking with press, talking with podcast folks, folks and you know, I have a few friends that do podcasts. You know, I came across your show um, because I found something of interest that you were doing and, and decided to reach out. A bunch of my other friends have podcasts. I want to start reaching out to them. Yeah. Just finding opportunities to talk about this record, about the process, about these songs, um, a little bit about myself and what I've sort of done with it. And um, just try and see how far I can get this to go. I'm going to play these songs live. I did put together a, uh, a band and we did two shows last week at Casbah San Diego and Redwood. I got, uh, I got uh, Richard Lloyd from television to come out and play guitar on those shows. Oh wow. That's, that's which awesome. was, which was a trip. Yeah. Um, I love television, but I really love the Matthew sweet records that Richard Lloyd played on. And he sort of like asked me, why did you track me down? And I said, <laughs> I really like those Matthew records that you yeah. did in the nineties. And I said, I sort of write from a, uh, a pop place like Matthew writes, but I said the work that you did on those records tempered that happiness or the buoyancy of those records. And you added uh, tension and you added grounding to those records through what you played. And he said, well, thank you. I says, I like those records a lot too. And I think that they're, I think they're good records. And I said, well, we can agree on that then. And uh, th so that was an interesting experience coming to know him, getting him to come out to LA rehearsing with him and the band and kind of going, okay, this is what we're doing, Richard. Where do you fit in here? And getting him to do his thing. And for the most part, I didn't say much. I just said, oh yeah, play some stuff here, play some stuff there. And he asked me for some chord charts. And uh, we did 
one rehearsal with him in the band and then we went out and played a couple of shows and I've looked at a little bit of the footage from it and I mean it came off just fine you know I'm do you really record the shows and watch I like didn't, a football uh, no team? I didn't but uh, people have videotaped them yeah. I sort of thought about that it it's helps a, it I, help. I think it does yeah. I think I think it can, I think it can help at the same time there's so much going on around doing your first shows and fronting your first band oh, course, and yeah. dealing with the other personalities and dealing with the venues and dealing with the promoters and dealing with transportation and and I thought to myself listen man got a full plate yeah let's not go too far down the rabbit hole the idea is to put these this lineup together and play a couple of shows to launch the record it doesn't mean that you've got to figure out how to document everything on the first week that you go out and play with your band so I tried to be realistic about that and yeah. say, you know what, dude, maybe that's not in the your control this time. Maybe this isn't something you want to look at right now. Right. Maybe you want to look at um, not not making the workload so heavy that you don't even enjoy getting up and playing these songs with your friends. And that was, a, I was really afraid of that. Yeah. I haven't fronted a band before. This is a lot of stuff I'm doing for the first time. But I think it's important to keep it fun and fresh and... I didn't yeah. want to get too stressed out to the point where I was like worried about six different different things or seven different things before I went on stage to play some a few songs with some friends. Like it shouldn't be like that. So I tried to take the approach of developing the idea first off, getting an idea of like what does this look like? Who's going to play in it? What's it going to sound like? I had worked with the drummer for several months before I brought other guys in so that I knew that, okay, we're in a good spot. We, you and I, we can play these songs. Now we can bring somebody else in. Instead of bringing four people into a room and then trying to teach them, like, okay, these are the songs, guys. Like, what's the point? Yeah, it's just chaos. It's chaos, yeah. and you're pulling your hair out. So I tried to do it from a more thoughtful and developed way. Um, I think it's worked for the most part. Now I'd like to carry that on. I'd like to play more live. I'd like more people to hear the songs. I'd like to work on the promotion of the record. Um, and enjoy that whole experience too, you know? Um, I want this, I want the promotional part of it to be fun too, you know, which is why I sort of reached out to you today. I thought, yeah. what a great way to just get into the rhythm of starting to talk to people about yeah. it. Grab the bull by the horns and go, I'd like to talk about yeah. this. Do you want to talk? Yeah, I'm glad you did. <laughs> and I'm glad that, uh, yeah. glad you're interested in hearing I'm some of what I had did. to say. No, this was great. Um, We'll mention it in all the descriptions, but where can people hear the record? Where uh, where can you get it? Yeah, so the easiest thing to do for folks that want to hear the record is just go to porterhouserecords.com. Porterhouserecords.com. It's like the steak, spelt like it sounds. There is a media player right there. You can stream the entire record uh, from beginning to end, and it doesn't cost you a dime. And you can poke around the sites and some of the other bands that uh, the label is working with. Uh, you can buy hard copies there. A uh, downloadable copy will be available there shortly, but the vinyl does have a download inside it. Um, and so that's the best place, I think, for people to go and check it out. There will be videos coming. There's going to be a, a slew of videos released for cool. all of these songs on the record. Those will eventually make their way onto YouTube. They're not there yet. Uh, so bit by bit, this will get rolled out over a six month to 12 month period and there'll be like a new video each month and we'll just slowly start adding on to the experience as it, as it happens and, uh, folks can drop by and find out what's new and what's going on. Hopefully, you know, like maybe once a month they go by Porterhouse and they go, oh, okay, what's he up to now? Is there a new video <laughs> now? Hopefully there is. You cool. Know? But and that's can, sort of the plan. You can get the vinyl at, at the uh, website? Yeah, you can buy the vinyl through the website. The vinyl at this point should be available in most of the small mom and pops record stores cool. in LA, uh, like Permanent, uh, like Gimme Gimme, uh, like uh, Going Under, 
are going underground. Um, those stores have all got play copies in them. So you can actually, if you're in LA and you want to walk into a mom and pops, pops record store, there's a good chance that they have the record there and they can play you a few cuts right there in the store. Sweet. So those are the two, the, the main ways to get it, get out and support your local record shop because yes, these guys are amazing people and they all run cool, small businesses that deserve to be supported. And uh, also drop by the Porterhouse Records website and check it out there and see if you like what you hear. Hopefully you do and buy a record if you do. Definitely. Uh, Stephen, is there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you that you were hoping to talk about? I think that's all kind of the main stuff. You know, Uh, we talked about the label. We talked about the record. We talked a little bit about my background. Um, Hopefully I'll have an opportunity to come on to your show maybe a year from now and talk about new music uh, that I'm working on. Um, oh, I know what I can tell you that I just found out the band Slick Shoes, who is an old punk rock band, yeah. pop, uh, pop, uh, punk band is coming into my studio to start recording a new record in a couple of weeks. So oh, that's exciting. I'm excited about that. And that'll be out on tooth and nail records, I believe. So I'll be, uh, reacquainting myself with some old friends and, uh, making some new racket with them. So I'm looking forward to doing that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Just doing my busy. record, doing other people's records, still running this label, that I've had for 20 years. There's always something going on in my in, in my world. Never a dull moment. Hopefully not. <laughs> I like it that way. Hey, thanks so much for stopping by and uh, telling us about the record. And This was a blast. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show and talk about it. And uh, hopefully you can spin a couple of tracks for people so that they can hear a little bit of it. Definitely. Right on. All right. right. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>